You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and my guest in this episode is Dr. Jenny Brockus. This is Jenny's second trip to the Team Guru Podcast. Her first was way back in episode 61 when we talked about the secrets to a healthy brain. Jenny's latest book is called Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life, and she joined me to tell me all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jenny Brockus. Jenny Brockus, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks so much. It's delightful to be with you. Jenny, we had a great chat over three years ago, and I did a bit of reviewing of that episode today when I was doing my preparation. Some fabulous advice all about the brain and having a healthy brain, and so much of your advice from that episode has stuck with me. It's called The Secret to a Healthy Brain, by the way, for anyone who wants to go back (laughs) three years and listen to us, uh, uh, what do they call it, jam then. But you've written a brand new book, which is a beautiful book, by the way. It's Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life. Wow, you have taken on quite the topic there, Jenny. Tell me, why was it important that you wrote this book? I guess it was partly out of frustration. I mean, when when I wrote the other book, Future Brain, it was really about how to help people perform at a higher level. In this, but what I realized is that while people were keen to learn how to be more productive, how to be more effective at work, it didn't really counteract the bad side of what was going on in the workplace. So many people were just completely overwhelmed, too much to do, too little time, always chasing their tail, feeling constantly just exhausted, never really delivering what they know they're truly capable of because there was never enough time And they just didn't have the energy to put into their work. So I really wanted to address that because I was fed up with seeing too many people overworking. I was also very worried that I was seeing as a consequence of that high stress, so many people were developing anxiety, depression, and, you know, all those sort of mental health disorders that go along with too much stress. And the third piece that really also concerned me was the fact that despite all our amazing technologies, so many people were expressing a a sense of disconnect. You know, we could contact each other with a press of just a couple of, you know, buttons, and yet we were feeling increasingly socially isolated and lonely. So the, the purpose of writing the book was really to try and address some of those issues and to help people to understand that actually we already have the answers. We just need to tap into what we know really works. And Jenny, I can see the passion that you just shared with us come through in your book. And, you know, I'll I'll ask you about this later. I'll get you to give me a little bit of an assessment. But I feel like for all my foibles and faults, I'm someone who lives a conscious life. I, I certainly make mistakes and I certainly get buried down too deeply in different parts, usually work from different times. But I do think overall, I I live a conscious life. And for those of us who have kind of tapped into that, when you see people who from the outside seem to not be living a conscious life, people who have fallen into some of those really 
obvious and common traps that we see people fall into, like uh, working too many hours and not spending enough time with the people they care about, like not looking after themselves physically and all the knock-on effects that that can have and the vicious cycle that it creates. When people like me who identify as someone who is conscious of the way they're living sees people like you just described, I can see where that motivation to write a book would come from because it's it's sad. It makes me sad to watch people I know who are living that life of of being out of control and being burnt out. Is that part of the motivation you were talking about? That's definitely part of it because I knew it doesn't have to be that way. And I really wanted to help people to see that there is an alternative. You know, we've bought into this idea that in order to be successful, you have to work your hardest all the time. It's no good just to put in 100%. You need to be putting in 110%. And this continuous drive to keep on keeping on, to show your worthiness, if you like, of being awarded a promotion or you know, a step up the career, the corporate ladder. So I think we've really got to sort of look at how we're running our lives. And like you say, you know, when you've adopted a conscious approach, it's much easier. But when you're caught up in the hurly-burly of just too much, it's very hard to see that. And especially when we're dealing with people who are teetering towards the edge of burnout, they're the last people to see what's coming because they're too caught up in just trying to chase their own tails. And I think what what prompted me to finally get on and write this book was because I fell foul of burnout myself and I wanted to help other people avoid that trap. You can be successful and you can have it all in terms of living a fulfilled and meaningful life without driving yourself into an early grave. I'm going to read a part of your book, if you don't mind. I don't know what the editor sure. is I hear of someone reading to the author. Normally it's the, the author doing the reading, but I'll- <laughs> I'll turn the tables on that (laughs) because I'm really keen in this conversation to talk about what has gone so terribly wrong for us and why so many people are are suffering the the kind of burnout that you talked about. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the good stuff. We're going to get you to talk about the three main categories that you address in your book of how we can address that. So let me just read from your book for a minute. I, I love this part. Uh, you started the chapter by by talking about, wouldn't it be amazing to wake up feeling refreshed and great every day, ready to take the day on, energized and all that kind of stuff. But it's just not like that. That's not how life works. And then you say, like last Tuesday, you oversleep, so you don't have time to pick up coffee on the way to work. Some rude jerk cuts you off in the traffic and you get into the office to face an angry colleague who blames you for some document that didn't get to, didn't make it to the right person. You've got 10 reminders on your phone telling you you're late for the monthly staff meeting and you've just noticed that in your haste to get out of the door, you blindly picked up a pair of shoes that seemed to match, but not in colour. All of this, along with the usual daily barrage of emails, phone calls, more meetings and a couple of extra meetings before you can get into your real work. And always the undercurrent of economic uncertainty, worrying about your job security and chronic work overload. There's no time to scratch yourself, let alone take a toilet break or have lunch, and you're feeling more than a little frazzled. You must be very proud of that piece of writing, Jenny. It's beautiful in an ugly kind of way because we can all relate (laughs) to that. It might be a culmination of the worst bits that can happen to you in your day, but everyone who's listening can relate to that. And 
And to that picture of of the worst kind of start to the day, you could very well add what we know statistically and anecdotally about our fellow Australians and Americans and people from the UK. You could add to that, you get home late and don't spend enough time with the people that you love. You maybe have a wine or two too many. And the number of people I hear talk about trying to have at least two non-alcohol nights a week as if that's a great goal. And then you eat badly as a result of all of the stuff that we've just talked about, not having time, not having enough time with the family, all that kind of stuff. Then you're drinking and you're eating badly. And then we know this statistically, stay up late and watch one too many episodes on the series you're watching on Netflix. So then you go to bed late and you don't get enough sleep. And then, of course, that means you don't get up the next morning and do the exercise you've been wanting to do for years or months. And this is a vicious cycle. And we know anecdotally and statistically, as I say, that so many people listening to this right now can relate to that story. So I'll start with the question I foreshadowed earlier. How did we let it get to me? I think it's just crept up on us. Overwork and burnout is, is like a stealth bomber. We don't notice it. We're just used to being busy. And because everybody else is busy, you think, oh, well, I've just got to get keep on with my busyness as well. It's a badge of honour, isn't Forgetting it? Forgetting that it is a badge of honour and, and that it's actually not sustainable. But because everybody else is doing it, you don't want to be seen as a slacker. You don't want to be seen as the person who goes home on time because, you know, you're not showing team allegiance if you do that. And if the person in charge isn't modelling that type of sort of healthy behavior, then everybody follows suit and follows what the leader does. So we come in early, we stay late, and we don't look after ourselves. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So you've broken your book up, in, and this is where we get to the solutions part. This is where we get to tap into your real genius. And and if, if along the way you can tell us some more horror stories about how life is affecting us that we can relate to, that'd be great. We love juice and gore on this podcast. But what we really love are, are really simple, brilliant, implementable ideas that we can all take away. And most importantly, or just as importantly, kind of organizing our brain so that we've got a structure for why we're doing what we could be doing or what we should be doing. So you've talked about and I'll, I'll just give the listeners a bit of a summary about what you talk about, how to elevate, these are three things. Number one is to how to elevate your mental and emotional well-being in order to be happier. Haven't you bitten off a topic there, the, the old pursuit of happiness, Jenny? Number two is how to successfully incorporate better self-care into your daily schedule to truly thrive. And number three is to harness the power of human connection to create deep and meaningful relationships and feel human. Let's go through each of those in turn, Jenny. And if you could leave us with your one most valuable piece of advice in each of those categories, we'd really appreciate it. Okay. So the first piece is about how we can feel happier. And it's definitely not the pursuit of happiness because I always say that happiness is just one item of clothing that you have in your wardrobe of emotions. You've got a whole array of emotions available to you and it's about wearing the appropriate emotion for the appropriate situation. But overall, some of us are not terribly happy. And it's by tapping into those things that give us joy, those simple pleasures of life, that we create our own happiness. 
And these are these little things that we do on a daily basis. It's about making sure that, you know, we, we're helping somebody out if we can see they're struggling with something. I mean, what, you know, something as simple as helping the neighbor bring in their shopping is, is, is a good starter. Or it could be reminding yourself of, you know, what's the purpose of you going to work every day? I mean, yes, you're going to get a paycheck, but hopefully there's something beyond that. Hopefully the work that you're doing is actually making you feel good because it's providing something of good or great contribution to the greater good overall. And I think we can just adopt the mindset of our choice. We can be more mindful in how we approach different situations, different people, so that day by day, bit by bit, we elevate our level of happiness so that we overall feel happier. And because emotions are contagious, if you're feeling happier, you're in a better state of mind, you're going to impact and influence other people around you. And we've always we've all experienced the reverse of that, where, you know, you're minding your own business, happy as Larry, and then somebody Some comes in, guts. you know, with a you know, all really gloomy guts. And within a you know very short time, everybody else is feeling gloomy too. So if we come in with an attitude of what can I do to bring out the best for my day and for everybody else? you're moving towards that more positive state of mind. I like that. And I think the, oh, <laughs> glad you like that. <laughs> and the one thing that I think makes the biggest difference to our level of happiness overall is the quality of our closest relationships. And there, there was a beautiful study where it's still going on. It hasn't yeah, finished yet. Um, began in 19... Amazing. Yeah, 1938. Oh, you, yeah. you know the, the Harvard study? Yeah. Oh, very good. Yes. So this study started to try and answer the question, you know, what makes people happy? Is it your background, your upbringing, the school you go to, which university you attend and all those sort of things? So they had two groups. It was done on using boys because at that time they didn't do research using girls. But anyway, but they've, they've changed story. that up now. They now include the wives. That's another story. So they took a group of boys who were called sophomores from Harvard, and they also took a group of disadvantaged boys from some of the poorest suburbs in Boston and followed them up on a longitudinal study every two years. They were interviewed in depth, asked all sorts of questions about their lives. And the remarkable thing was it didn't matter who they were, who they knew, but it was the quality of that closest relationship that determined how well they aged and how happy they were overall in their life, their level of life satisfaction, they called it. That's amazing. It's a bit like that 7-Up series, but even longer, and honing yeah. in on that yes. question of happiness. So as I read in your book, the original people in the study are in their 90s now, and they've expanded it to take yes, in their right. family members to keep it going. What an amazing piece of research. All right. I love that. So we've just challenged Jenny to talk to us about being happier. And of course, that's a, a huge topic in itself. I love what you said at the beginning. You talked about happiness being just one of the emotions that we wear. And it's really important to wear the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time. And you can look at both ends of that. You know, it's super annoying for someone who you look at and, you know, everything's fine. They, they could be happy. There's no need to bring a gloomy guts kind of attitude into this situation, whether it's social or work. And, you know, you would like those people to think about wearing the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time. But it's actually 
just as almost off-putting the other way. When you see someone going through a hard time or going through something that probably does deserve an emotion that might be anxiety or sadness or whatever it might be, but they're not wearing that one. They're, They're wearing an inappropriate emotion. And even though it's a more positive emotion that's appropriate, there's actually something a bit creepy about that as well. It's someone who's not totally connected with themselves as a person or at the very least doesn't feel as though they can show the outside world the connection they have with their own emotions. Very much so. And I think this is very true for those people who feel like they're always having to put on a different persona, especially when they go to work. They're different at work from how they are at home or in the rest of their lives. And that's that's exhausting in itself. Um, And and it's really unhealthy. And the other thing is, you know, we sometimes don't want to be seen as the Debbie Downer when things aren't going well. We don't want to be seen as the whiner and the complainer. So we put on this brave face or mask when actually, you know, if we're going through a really difficult time, it's perfectly okay to acknowledge your true feelings about this. I mean, you're not necessarily going to sort of tear your shirt off your back or sort of, you know, weep and wail. But if you don't, if you don't, (laughs) or if you don't share how you're truly feeling, people can't help you. And I think especially when people are battling a low mood or have depression, this is absolutely critical because, you know, if you've just put on the smile and everybody's sort of saying, are you sure you're okay? Because you're not quite yourself and you say, oh yeah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And you know that they're not telling you the truth. It's really hard to help them and to help them to recover more quickly. Beautiful. And I I sort of put us off a little bit there because I was talking about one of the comments you made earlier about wearing the appropriate emotion. I love that piece of advice. But the real piece of advice, the real tangible you gave us about the first one, happiness, was asking yourself every day, what can I do to bring out the best in myself and the people around me? That's a pretty simple question that you can ask yourself. And bit by bit, it's improving our own sense of well-being and, and that of those around us. And that's a really nice piece of advice. All right, well, let's move on to Thrive then. And you've talked about incorporating better self-care into your daily schedule to truly thrive. Explain what you mean by thrive and then tell us some really tangible takeaways that we can implement every day to do this. Well, I think people have different interpretations of what to thrive actually means for them, and that's okay. But from my perspective, thriving is about where You feel good about yourself and your situation in life and in work. You're thriving because your mental well-being is positive. You're feeling physically well, and you've got some great relationships happening. So when you've got the trifecta like that, everything falls into place and you're feeling absolutely great. So you bounce out of bed in the morning feeling, yep, fantastic. It's Monday. Bring it on. I can't wait to get to work or go and do whatever I'm going to do. So that to me is fully thriving. But I I talk about the need for self-care as self-care with a little bit of a twist, because a lot of people think about self-care as the nutrition, the exercise and the sleep and the stress management, all very, very true and absolutely essential. But if you take self-care to the next level, It's about those other things as well. It could be music. It could be dancing. It could be 
choosing to be creative and follow your passion for painting or singing or something like that. So self-care is about nourishing yourself, nourishing your soul, as well as your physical body. So I think that's why I like to sort of say, you know, twist of lemon in in the self-care drink goes down the tree. That's an excellent explanation of Thrive. It's about feeling good about yourself and your situation in life. I really like that. And so many times we've heard on this podcast about the importance of relationships, and you've really honed it into that one most valuable relationship in your life. And you know, that study that you were referring to earlier, one of the things I remember reading was that at 50, it's the nature of my close relationships that indicate that are the best indicators of my health at 80, better than the strength of my heart, better than my cholesterol, better than my health and well-being. It's the nature of my relationships that will say how well I'm going when I'm 80. That's amazing. But that's not to say that we should neglect our diet and our exercise, because if you can get both right, then you really are on a winner. Now, Jenny, you might have said it, And I missed it because I was too busy listening, which is intuitive. What was the one piece of tangible advice that you'd like us to take away for Thrive? What's the thing that we can do every day that's going to help us thrive? It's quite simple. Well, can I have two, actually, because one's always a bit limiting. (laughs) The first would be to get outside into nature. It can be a green space. It can be a blue space. It really doesn't matter. Depends on your situation where you live. But if you can get outside for 20 minutes, 30 minutes every day, doesn't matter if the sun is shining or it's a you know, windy, wet day, doesn't matter. But spending that time outside at one with nature is absolutely critical for how you feel about yourself and the world around you. And it's now shown that we need a minimum of 120 minutes per week in nature in order to safeguard our mental well-being. So if things are getting on top of you, if you are feeling a bit stressed or a bit anxious about things, especially during this this time of the pandemic, just simply getting outside for a short walk is going to make the biggest difference. And the second thing that is absolutely critical to our ability to thrive is getting enough sleep. Like you said at the beginning, you know, so many of us curtail how much time we have available to sleep because we stay up too late and then we get up super early in the morning and we forget that our need for sleep is absolutely critical to every single system in our body down to the level of every cell. And it's just as important, if not more important, than great nutrition and getting enough exercise. Absolutely. And I've already said it in this episode and I've said it in other episodes, but we're up against it. You know, relaxing, you know, for me, after the kids go to bed, relaxing, my wife and I have always got a series we're kind of watching together. Netflix and Stan and those things are set up for you to let it keep running. I mean, it literally comes up as the next episode starting in five seconds. And of course, all of the episodes are designed to leave you hanging at the end of every episode. So how many people are sitting in Australia right now making the mistake of watching one more episode when they've made this promise to themselves, no, I need to get my, I need to get more sleep. I was sitting at my desk tired today. I want to go to bed early so I can get up and do that exercise tomorrow. But here's Netflix contriving against us for us to play that one next episode. You know, I always think, oh, I'm always tempted, but it's the other things in my life that I want 
are so powerful that I'm able just, there's one button. I just press the TV off. And as soon as you've broken, it's like a spell that you've broken and you get up and you think, no, I am going to bed at this decent time because I've got things I want to do tomorrow. You never wake up in the morning and think to yourself, I'm so glad I watched that one last episode of Ozark. You never think that, but you do wake up in the morning and think to yourself, geez, I'm glad I went to bed last night when I did. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we just have to play Netflix at its own game. We know that the last two to five minutes are set up to make you want to watch the next episode. So we've got a choice. We can either turn it off before we get to the end and watch it the following night, but that's that's tricky. Or we watch that last two to five minutes and we wait for that countdown. Your next episode starts in five seconds and just watch the first two to five minutes because that's going to tell you the outcome that's otherwise going to keep you in suspense all night long. And then turn it off then because you don't need to watch the whole of the rest of the episode. Jenny, I, so, I, I like that, it. That's smart. You? But you know what? <laughs> you are giving Netflix the power. You're saying, all right, you know, you've got this power over me. I need to work around it. So I'll I'll watch the next few few minutes. And how many times does the next few minutes turn into 15 and 20 and 30? And you might as well just finish watching the next episode. And then you're in the same pickle all over again. You are giving Netflix the power in that situation, Jenny. <laughs> you think I so? Do. Well, I think we have to do what works for us. <laughs> That's true. Who am I to tell you? You've written a book. <laughs> All right, now let's get on to the last one. To harness the power of human connection to create deep and meaningful relationships and feel human. Tell us what you mean by that and leave us with your top one to 20. You know, have as many as you like. Okay, so this, this piece is all about our social intelligence. We spend a lot of time talking about emotional intelligence and the need to get better at, with that, which is still true. However, our need for social intelligence is just as critical. So the difference is emotional intelligence is that awareness of our emotions and the impact it has on us and how we show those emotions to other people and how it impacts them. With social intelligence, we're reading the room, so to speak. We're observing how our, we're interacting with others and it's actually more future-focused rather than present-focused. And our need to be connected with other human beings is so strong, it's been shown by the research to be as important to our survival as air, food and water. So we need that sense of connection and we can trace it back to our, our ancestors. I mean, human babies are born immature, vulnerable, unable to support themselves. They have to have a caregiver. Useless. I know. <laughs> so, totally useless. <laughs> so we have to be able to create that bond. So you know, when a mother gives birth, her brain pumps out all this hormone called oxytocin, which enables her to go, ah, oh, look at this wonderful bundle of joy. This is my baby. I love him or her. And, you know, that connection is then formed and the baby's going, phew, now I know I'm going to get fed and changed and kept in a nice warm space. And, and dads have oxytocin too. You don't have to feel that you're missing out on anything. Anytime with people that we like, our oxytocin levels rise, which is great. Fabulous. I like, you know what? So social intelligence, that's a really powerful concept. And I love the way you've juxtaposed it with the ever so valuable emotional intelligence. The emotional intelligence is that personal stuff, being able to understand yourself. 
but social intelligence is reading the room, as you say. That's great. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter what you do on a daily basis, we're always interacting with other people. And I think what I would really love to see as one outcome of this terrible pandemic is that we connect more meaningfully with other people. And I think we've been seeing this already. There's a, there's, I've certainly from my perspective where I live, there's been a stronger sense of community. People have actually come together and got to know each other for the first time. And we've lived in our house for a couple of decades and we've met people over the last few months that we didn't even know lived in our street. Even though we were in lockdown, you know, we'd all stand at the end of our driveways going, hello, hello, who are you? Oh, my name's Jenny. Who are you and what do you do? All that sort of stuff. And I think at work, the need for that safety piece to know that we talk about it as being psychological safety. But I think every person who has a job deserves the respect of being able to go to a safe working environment where they will be supported and nurtured and stretched to be their best and so that they can do work that they know is great and hang out with other people who they get along with. They want this politics and, you know, people being horrible to each other. It's really so destructive. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bullying out there. We really need to get to grips with how to create safer work environments. And I think it all starts with the leadership to model the behavior that they want to see with everybody. Like they know the famous Gandhi saying, be the change you want to see and making sure that everybody is treated with the same level of trust and respect. I really hope that moving forwards, we're going to see a lot more kindness, a lot more compassion and a lot more empathy. And I think the empathetic leader, the person who seeks to understand what's really going on with the people who work for them or alongside them will be the leader who will be most successful moving into our post-COVID world. Let's hope so, Jenny. You paint a beautiful picture. Dr. Jenny Brockus, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's been a joy. And that was Dr. Jenny Brockus, who has taken on the task of helping us shape the way we actively pursue happiness. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jenny on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.